This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast. I'm Vas Christodoulou. We've got three major thinkers for the price of one this week. Gordon Brown is the former Prime Minister of the UK and now the UN's Special Envoy on Education. Mohamed El Arian led PIMCO, one of the world's biggest asset managers, and was chair of President Obama's Global Development Council. And Michael Spence is a Nobel Laureate economist whose insights have changed the way the world does business. They've written a new book called Permacrisis, a plan to fix our fractured world. We brought them together with the broadcaster Mariella Frostrup to find out more. The book opens uh, with the statement that it's not meant to be a substitute for melatonin. And um, <laughs> I can assure you that it kept me awake for many, many hours, uh, puzzling over the content. There's so much uh, to delve into tonight. Um, what you say is it was born from the state of the world keeping you up at night. And uh, with my other hat on as an agony aunt, I wondered if you might just for a moment tell me what those deepest fears were, starting with you, Gordon. Uh. What was keeping you awake at night? Well, well, let me say, first of all, I'm here not as a practicing politician. I'm here as a recovering politician. <laughs> I'm, I'm too old to be a European uh, candidate. Too young to be an American candidate, as you probably, <laughs> as you probably know. <laughs> and w- what we want to set out is three things. A new theory for economic growth that takes into account the environment and considerations of equity and good employment. A new theory of national economic management uh, that makes sure we don't go through the boom-bust cycles of the past, but also can coordinate policy far more effectively for growth, employment, and high standards of living, and to pay for public services. And thirdly, a new theory of international cooperation, uh, that we break down the barriers that now exist to people working together to solve climate change, pandemics, financial instability, and everything else. So when we talk about permacrisis, you must think of lots of words. You must think of pandemics, you must think of climate, you must think of debt, you must think of war, you must think of recessions. You must also think of the state of British politics, <laughs> the state of American politics, the state of uh, Euro- European politics. Someone said to me, uh, when you see the state of the country, do you pray for your politicians? And I said, no, when I see the state of the politicians, I pray for the country. <laughs> and what I think is novel about what we're trying to say is that in the past, we talked about shared problems around the world, common problems, Now we're talking about what I call global problems in need of global solutions, 
that cannot be solved unless people find a way of globally coordinating action, indeed of, of, of working together. So you can't solve climate change without people working together. You can't solve pandemics without people working together. You can't have financial stability without understanding that you're only as strong as your weakest, weakest link. And so what I think we're saying is, unless we can get to a new way of cooperating together, then we will have a, a decade of, of cascading crises. Uh, we will not have the growth that we need and the employment and the standards of living. Uh, and this is something we've got to do something about. You can blame the politicians, of course, but there are big structural forces that we might discuss during the evening at, at, at work. But the most important thing is to realize, unless we find a way of working together, then the problems that we are all worried about cannot be solved. And that's why we're putting forward proposals about how we work together. Gordon, the deepest fears did have relevance because the point of it was to uncover why, how we got here, why this is a particular point that needs investigating from the point of view that you've taken in the book. Well, well, so uh, when you do lie <laughs> in bed at night, what are the things that trouble you now that perhaps didn't trouble you a decade ago? Well, when I became Chancellor of the Exchequer, climate change was not the problem that we now see it to be. And it's an existential problem. Uh, and we're fast appointing the, uh, the, the, we're fast getting to the point of no, no, no return. I was talking on the radio this morning about how I see us financing the mitigation and adaptation to prevent the droughts and the floods and the firestorms and the melting of the ice caps and how in particular Africa has got only 2% of the emissions but 50% of the cost of adaptation with hardly any money to do it. And so I was suggesting we tax uh, the petrol states that have made massive, massive windfall profits, unimaginable profits in the last year. One and a half trillion, that's $1,500 billion of profits that are unearned, that have come to them simply because of the war in Ukraine and the rise in energy prices. Now they should be contributing to the solution to climate change, particularly so since the people who are suffering most are in the poorest countries who are paying these high oil prices and, and are now in dire poverty as a result. So one practical proposal coming out of our book is let's have a burden-sharing agreement to deal with climate change, let the petrostates make their contribution, 25 billion, let the advanced economies now come on board, and let's end a decade of broken promises where betrayal of promises has been the order of the day, particularly for the coastal states and the poorest countries of the world. We'll talk, we'll talk in a minute about how you achieved that, but Mohammed, if I could come to you now and ask the same question, really, that the fears that you think are particular to now and what permacrisis means to you at this moment in time. First, thank you very much for coming and thank you for moderating. Um, I summarize it as the fears of a parent thinking about the world we are leaving, leaving, leaving our kids. And I regularly apologize to my two daughters because we're leaving them with a world where we, we have abused our planet, where we've forgotten how to grow in a durable and inclusive way that respects the planet. We are leaving them a world of high inequality, a world of high debt, a world of political dysfunction. And that is going to be their inheritance. So what brought us together is this concern we all have as parents as to the world we are leaving our kids. What kept us together are three things. One, 
and this, this was my main role in this whole thing, my ability to send out Zoom links. So that we <laughs> Everyone needs one of yeah. you. <laughs> Two is, is we come to the problems from very different perspectives. Gordon, an amazing policymaker who really cares about public well-being, has both a domestic and a global perspective. Mike, who is a Nobel Prize winner, an incredible economist, and the most humble Nobel Prize winner around, because no matter what you tell him, he will try to understand why you're coming with a point of view, and you end up much smarter. And then, to the extent I brought anything other than the Zoom, it is the experience of having worked um, in corporate and, and also as a civil servant. So that kept us together, the fact that we ended up learning from each other on each of these Zoom calls. And then the third that thing that kept us together is hope. While we spent a lot of time lamenting about the state of the world, we started finding partial solutions. And I, I want to stress, they are partial. There is no silver bullet here. There is no big bang. It is a series of things that are both desirable and feasible that build a foundation for changing the momentum, going from vicious cycles where the next state of the world is even worse than this state of the world to virtuous cycles where the next state of the world is better. And our belief that there are a set of implementable measures that can change the very concerning path that we're on right now. Mike, because your theories on economic growth, as, as Mohammed alluded to there, have literally changed the way the world conducts business. Growth has become a, a buzzword in the UK, I think across the globe during particularly this current economic crisis. And as the world reckons with climate reality, people are beginning to ask if a, a growth-led approach to the economy is the right one. I think we all agreed that if you're going to solve difficult problems, even partial solutions, you need to diagnose the environment that you're in well, uh, or you'll make mistakes. And I think in the book, in the course of going through it, I think, you know, particularly Mohammed has documented on economic management, lots of mistakes. So what is this world? Our, our, our proposition is that we lived in a very unusual world for the last three decades, up to roughly the start of the pandemic, which was largely a demand-constrained world. That is, we had unbelievably large amounts of incremental productive capacity and labor added to the global economy in those three decades. In the latter part of that period, we had central banks that set interest rates to zero and pumped liquidity into the system with no sign of inflation. Now that just runs counter to almost everything you'll, you'll learn in the first, first course in economics. This has switched relatively suddenly to a supply-constrained world. And the narrative on that was the pandemic caused it and all that cluttering up of global supply conditions was a result of the pandemic and all of those things would normalize and we would go back to where we were. And that was a mistake. So let me describe the world to you in different terms that have more structural and secular characteristics. One, the emerging economy effect is fading. There are no more Chinas to add to the global economy. Two, 
more than three-quarters of the global economy is aging. Three, every country, every company in, that operates in the global economy in every country is starting to diversify global supply chains. We used to construct these things based on efficiency and comparative advantage alone, no longer, right? Uh, if you want an example, I live in Italy, in northern Italy. Look at the very high-speed diversification of the European economies away from dependence on Soviet fossil fuels. It's incredibly expensive. There's big changes in labor market behavior. The pandemic produced a run-up that I'm sure Mohammed will talk about in a minute in sovereign debt ratios. And then the central banks got the tran transitory part wrong, got a late start, and we have an inflationary world that just wasn't there before. There are still people who think all of this is transitory and we're somehow going to go back to where we were, but I hope I've convinced you that's not likely. The, the killer, from an economic point of view, is there's been a steady, noticeable decline in productivity. In a supply-contained world, that is extremely expensive. Now, why is this important? You know, if you try to rebalance the income and wealth distribution in a no-growth world, it's a zero-sum game. What comes from, goes to one person has to come from another. If you try to invest three to four trillion dollars in, in, in addition to current investment levels in the energy transition that's required to deal with climate change, where's that going to come from? Governments? With rising interest rates and, and high debt ratios? Probably not. So, so before we get to whether there's a chance to grow, I think one of the things we agreed early on was whatever our objectives are, getting there absolutely requires reversing this negative, globally negative trend with respect to growth. And where do we start with that? I mean, you mentioned um, the the oil rich or the petro nations today that you brought up, uh, strange bedfellows when you have Kuwait, UAE and Saudi Arabia and Norway all together as countries that you would like to see pay 3% of the, the profits that they've made into a sort of windfall tax for those petro countries. Norway, I'm sure, would argue that they do an awful lot, uh, punch probably quite high above their weight on the global stage in terms of all kinds of philanthropic work. So how do you convince these nations? Because, I mean, obviously it's right. They've made extreme and indeed obscene profits. But how do you convince them that it's the right thing to do? Where does the imperative come from? Well, it's interesting that uh, the COP28 conference, which is coming up, is being held in the Middle East. It's the United Arab Emirates that wanted to chair it. It's a bit of an irony that the chairman of COP28 is also the head of one of the biggest oil and most profitable oil companies in the world. So I think they have a responsibility. He's been going around the world saying, put up the money, asking other people to put up the money. I think the starting point is that they should put up the money. So if you look at Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia has moved its export earnings from 190 billion to 310 billion. In other words, they've had a windfall profit of 120 billion. And that's why you read stories every day about them trying to buy up football clubs or football players or Formula One or golf or all these things, because they've got more money than they know what to do with. And that's why the pressure has got to go on from people like us. 
and from uh, within Africa, where they want to help with climate change, to push them into doing something uh, but, about it. But how now, do that, we put that pressure on them? Because, because, I mean, they're well, fairly I, resistant. I met uh, President Lula last week in New York, and, I, and he is chairman of the G20 and, uh, from Brazil, and is future chairman of COP, and he wants to put pressure on. Uh, I've met uh, a, a number of other people across Europe and America who understand that if you're going to do something about climate change, you've got to choose to act where there is a problem or a, an injustice that's got to be addressed. Now, once you start the ball rolling, then the advanced economies, including Britain, have got to play their part. But that money is, is available, and it's been earned at the expense of the poorest people in the world. How can you justify Saudi Arabia, with its human rights record, buying up all the world's sports uh, uh, tournaments uh, when the money has been made at the expense of the poorest people in Africa. We've got to do something about it. And I hope people will join a campaign in the next eight weeks for something to happen. Mohammed, the, the book talks uh, quite a bit about the failure of uh, almost every international institution set up in order to monitor, to equalize, to everyone from the International Monetary Fund, at the, um, I mean, the list is a, is a long one. Can you detail for us a bit what those failures have been and what could change that would mean, you know, I mean, I'm sure people will agree, you know, because of the war in Ukraine and things, we've seen the UN not seem to be able to do uh, what it's needed to to do what it was set up to do, and it does seem to be a kind of international failure of the institutions, the very institutions that we've relied on since the Second World War, certainly, to preserve a kind of decent global order. Okay, so whether you look at international organizations or domestic policymaking, the way to summarize what's, what has gone on is winning the war but losing the peace. The war has been crises the global financial crisis, the complete shutdown of economies during the pandemic. The system responded well to these emergencies. So we won a war, a war against a multi-year depression. Had we not responded to the global financial crisis, and sitting on my left here is the man who actually coordinated that response. There's a wonderful bit in the book where they were sitting in the G20 meeting and the French president complained that no one had a plan. And President Obama said, Gordon has one. <laughs> but in, in general, we've been pretty good at responding to crises. The problem is the peace part. And the peace part has two elements. is We haven't been good at crisis prevention, so we tend to stumble into new crises. And some of them look like the old crisis. In March of this year, the U.S. had more bank failures than they did during the global financial crisis. Mm -hmm. Think about that. We are supposed to have gotten it right, and yet we had major bank failures. Um, we fail at crisis prevention, and we fail at bouncing back from a crisis into high-growth equilibrium. So the failures are due to a few things. One, the institutions haven't evolved. That's true at the global level. Whether it's their governance, their representation, they represent the world of yesterday, not the world of today and tomorrow. And therefore, the rest of the world feels that they're less and less stakeholders in that world. 
The second problem is that the tools haven't evolved quickly enough. And then the third problem that people often ignore has to do with mindsets. And we cite examples that there's a tendency to go to the easy solution. So when inflation reared its ugly head in 2021, central banks rushed to call it transitory. Transitory is a very dangerous word. When I tell you something is transitory, I'm telling you it's temporary, it's reversible, so don't change your behavior, don't worry about it, it's going to go away on its own. That mistake is the reason why inflation got embedded. That mistake is the reason why interest rates have had to go up very high. That mistake is why people are having problems with their mortgage payments. And it was an avoidable mistake had the central banks been more open-minded about the different range of outcomes. And finally, I would say one message that comes out from the book very strongly is that we cannot predict exactly what's going to happen other than to say, if we continue on this path, more unthinkables are going to become thinkables. And our hope is that the, that dynamic can change. Hello, it's Vas here, recommending you a new book from our friends at Firm Press. This May, the author of The Argonauts and other genre-defying, unclassifiable modern classics, Maggie Nelson, is back with a new collection of essays. It's called Like Love. The collection celebrates art, artists and thinkers, including Prince, Bjork, Sarah Lucas and Judith Butler. Like Love is available to pre-order now in hardback, ebook, and audio. So, Mike, how do you change, how do you get to a point where the global view that needs to be taken in terms of economies can be translated back to national governments with their own short-term ambitions, generally to do with staying in power, but which require them to make the kind of sacrifices and have a broader vision that isn't conducive to the way politics are, you know, are played out these days. Well, I think that's exactly right. I mean, there are examples of uh, democratic governments that you would think have only short-term horizons investing in long-term objectives like growth. This is happening in India now. India is the large, the, of the large and potentially large economies, the ones with the highest potential growth at the moment. It used to be China. Um, and they are investing. Uh, I think the way that's done, I mean, the crucial element in that, uh, or ingredient in that recipe is leadership. I mean, when you see this done successfully, it's because leaders essentially communicate a vision. Uh, and people respond to it. Um, it's a sense of what is possible. Now, all the great leaders that I have studied in the context of development had the ability to make people believe that their children and grandchildren would be better, dramatically better off than they were. And, and, and people are willing to invest in that because they care so much, as, as both Gordon and Mohammed said. Once you get to that point, then I think you've taken away the, the principal obstacle. It's true that the start is harder than keeping going, right? If you're in a low-growth equilibrium, jump-starting it, 
you know, when that's not the historical experience that people have, leads to more skepticism than after, say, five or ten years, when you're actually in that high growth mode. Then, then it's, I think, a little easier, not easy by any means, to sustain it. So, so I think that, that's where we are. Uh, and the story has to be convincing, uh, is the only thing I, I would add to that. Maybe my colleagues will, will find other dimensions of it. But, but I think that occurs at the national level. Um, it occurred after World War II at the international level, where basically the leaders of the world at that point, mainly the developed countries, decided that we weren't going to repeat the mistakes after World War I, crush the vanquished, forget about war recovery. And I think you all know that the architecture of the system that we lived with for so long that's materially enhanced the poverty reduction that we've seen globally was a result of, you know, some pretty wise choices. What we are all saying, and I think Gordon is uh, pushing for, is we need a kind of reinvention, you know, of that system that's fit for purpose in the, in the modern era. Because without it, not only can we not solve problems, but we can't achieve the full potential. Mm. Of the and you need the appetite of politicians, though, and you've, you've been the leader, uh, Gordon. In the book, you say that value will be measured differently with social impact-weighted accounting taking its place, perhaps legislated as a statutory requirement alongside traditional profit and loss balance sheets. But even most recently here in the UK, you know, you've seen, it's, I mean, it's a noble ambition, but we've seen with the water companies in the UK no. that, 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 that that pressure to observe social impact doesn't seem to have made itself felt in any shape or form. You know, This is my plea that we, we stop greenwashing and we tell the honest truth about what's happening water companies utility companies companies themselves and I think over the next few years in addition to publishing your profit and loss as a company you're going to have to publish and should have to publish your social impact so I call it impact weighting accounting and others do which means you've got to show your impact on the environment you've got to have metrics that show what you're doing in terms of employment and diversity uh, and generally your social uh, impact as, as a company. And it will come a time, look, it, uh, when the Great Depression happened in 20, 1929, companies had not published accounts in any regular way, in any systematic way, and it was only after the Great Depression that they were forced to have profit and loss accounts with the same standards as everybody else. And now I think you're gonna find in the next few years that companies are gonna be forced to publish not just profit and loss, but show that they've made an impact and what the impact is on the community. And I know a big project's been done at Harvard University and they look at the three oil companies, Exxon, Shell and BP, and you think they're all to blame for pollution. But actually one of them, Exxon, is far worse than the other. And when you see the figures of individual companies, people will be able to decide, do I want to invest in this company or not? Uh, and it's true of car companies, it's true of food companies and what their effect is on the environment. What I'm really saying, and I think Mike is, is emphasize this, look, things don't look very promising at the moment. You've got a war in Ukraine. You've got a standoff between China and America. You've got the global south angry at what happened over vaccines and what's happened over food and famine and angry, of course, that they're not getting the money to deal with uh, cl climate change. And things don't seem very propitious uh, for any breakthrough that uh, Mike and Mohammed are talking about. But if you look back over the last uh, 75 years, 
it's in some of the least propitious of times that you've had a breakthrough. Just remember that the uh, nuclear test ban treaty, John Kennedy, he sprung on Khrushchev this idea that America was prepared to sign this test ban treaty, and by his leadership, he got it within a few weeks. If you think of the ozone layer, it's now being repaired because Russian and American scientists were prepared to work together because they saw this as a huge problem even when there was tension elsewhere. And just think of Ronald Reagan and, and Gorbachev. In the 1980s, everybody thought the Cold War was at its height and at its worst. Reagan had called uh, uh, Russia the evil empire. Reagan had this view of all these left-wing politicians. In fact, there's a Swedish politician we mentioned in the book, uh, Olaf Palme, who wanted to see Reagan, and he was a social democratic politician. And Reagan said, just before he came in to his friends, isn't this man a communist? And his uh, advisors say, no, Mr. President, he's an anti-communist. And Reagan said, I don't care what kind of communist he is. <laughs> uh, but even, even Ronald Reagan was prepared to come to an agreement with uh, Gorbachev when nobody thought that this was possible in the 1980s. So look forward to, 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 to now. And even when things seem very bleak, because you can see the tension developing and getting worse between China and, and America, and you can see this long war in Ukraine uh, going on uh, for months, if not, if, if not years, and you can see all the tensions emerging between the other different parts of the world as America loses its hegemony and people break away from America and side with different countries. But you need to break through and you need lateral thinking. Can I just finish with a story about this? J.P. Morgan was the most famous banker in America at the turn of the 20th century, and he'd made an absolute fortune, uh, but he had a blind spot. Edison came to him asking him to support his new idea, electricity, and J.P. Morgan, the famous banker, successful in everything, said it will never work, and so he tried to bring Edison down. He wouldn't support his company. And then Edison invented all these great things, and he was about to employ Henry Ford as his general manager. But he said to Ford, I'll only employ you if you give up on this ridiculous idea of a motor car and the internal <laughs> combustion engine. And he too had a blind spot, brilliant as he was. And then Henry Ford, he went into politics and thought he was gonna be a president and, and a senator. And he stood for election and made every mistake in the book. He changed party within a few weeks of starting to stand, wouldn't canvass, wouldn't give public speeches. All he did was try to expose his opponents and he lost his election. And he'd been given advice by Woodrow Wilson, the president. And there's a book uh, just out called The Madman in the White House. And you might think it's about someone else, <laughs> but it's actually about Woodrow Wilson. And Woodrow Wilson blew up his creation, the League of Nations, in a fit of pique and told the Senate to vote against it. So all these brilliant people had blind spots. And so the only way we can actually solve problems and have the lateral thinking that's necessary is we come together as groups of people. Now, I'm very lucky that we're doing thinking with the two economists that I respect most who've done a fantastic job in their own careers. But if we're gonna solve the problems and if we're gonna get some action on climate change, on infectious diseases, on inequality, on financial stability, we need people to come together and share their ideas and be part of a team that is doing something about it. The lesson of history is even in bad times, you can make progress if you can get the right people to give the proper leadership that is necessary to solve the problems. And it's the leadership that we now need to solve the problems we have.
Well, unfortunately, in the book, you haven't come up with a system for finding good leaders. Um, so that's one oversight, when I was, perhaps. When I was Chancellor, they used to say there was only two kinds of finance minister. There were those who failed, and there were those who got out just in time. <laughs> so we didn't have much faith in getting solutions then. Um, but I thought we should go on to talk about development. You've mentioned Africa uh, a couple of times. You write in the book that to restore the possibility of development, the world's poorest countries need help. Uh, you'll be well aware that 0.7% wasn't in the end enshrined in our constitution somehow. It, it is actually in law, but it's not being uh, observed. This is one of the problems. In 2015, uh, a private member's bill was passed in Parliament requiring the government to spend 0.7% of national income on development aid. And that is still the law. What the government has said is that there is a temporary suspension on this, but it looks pretty permanent. It's certainly not transitory, Mohammed. <laughs> and so, you know, when we came into power in 1997, 0.28% of our national income was spent on overseas development aid. By the time we left in 2010, uh, it was uh, approaching 0.7 and reached 0.7. And to be fair to the Conservatives, they held to that for a few years. But now the figure is so low, I'm afraid to say that 0.7 has been reduced to 0.5, but most of the rest is now being spent domestically uh, on migration and on Ukraine refugees and not being spent in the poorest countries of the world. So I would say that the amount of development aid now being spent by this government is back to where it was, not 0.28 in, in 1997. But it is a legal obligation, and I think we should hold those people who are in power to that legal obligation to help the poorest of the world. But it's also problematic, is it not? Because actually, as you argue in the book, without better investment, further investment, perhaps investment without the sort of returns expected at the moment, the developing world can't develop, and that has an absolutely enormous impact, which I think is a messaging system that's failed to get through to perhaps populations in more developed countries. Well, Africa has 1.2 billion people. That is going to rise to 2.5 billion over the next 30 years. So Africa will be 25% at least of the population of the world very soon. But it's only got about 1% of the investment it's only got about 1% of manufacturing. It's only got about 1% of foreign uh, uh, direct money coming into, into the country. Uh, and we must do something to help Africa because if people in Africa see that they're better off being poor in a rich country than being rich in a poor country, that they're, 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 they're gonna be better off moving from Africa into Europe or elsewhere, then that is what's gonna happen with that huge population rise of young people. And I say, if we could help Africa develop its own resources, for example, Africa, as you probably know, is not self-sufficient in food. It's got some of the greatest agricultural land of the world, but it is a net importer of, of food. And, and there's a plan around, which I would commend to you, that the World Bank invest 10 billion to make sure that the food and fertilizer industries of the most successful countries in Africa are encouraged so that they can spread the, the food and the fertilizer right across the continent. Now, again, this is a practical project. It could be done. Africa could become self-sufficient in food. There's no reason why it shouldn't be. But what's holding us back is that we've been unable to, um, to get the World Bank uh, to do what is necessary, which is to fund this. And we've been unable to find the country's uh, leadership that they will push for this. 
But I'm absolutely certain, given the famine of the last few months in Africa, you know, there's plenty of food around the world. It's just not distributed properly to those who need it. China's got massive stocks of food at the moment that are being held, and so have other countries. But we could do something about it. It's practical problems that have practical solutions that can make for a better future for, 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 for Africa. And maybe Mohammedan might want to talk about the, the manufacturing and industrial possibilities and the service sector possibilities, because uh, you, know, you could have a lot of uh, jobs in, in Africa that are built on uh, artificial intelligence and, and other uh, advances in technology. Indeed, well, I want to talk to Mike in a minute about artificial intelligence or augmented intelligence, as you describe it in the book. But I wanted first, you mentioned China there, and China is, of course, a, an enormous player in all of this. You mentioned self-sufficiency, and China seems to be very much um, pointing in the direction of developing its own self-sufficiency in order for it not to have to engage uh, with the rest of the world. In the book, you describe it, I think, as decoupling. I think Gwyneth Paltrow described it as conscious uncoupling. But <laughs> whatever you call it, it's what's going on between the US and China at the moment, isn't it? And it sets the stage, really, for a new world order for which we're woefully ill-prepared and not really as orderly as the Cold War was with its straight geographical line. I mean, the phrase now is not just decouple, it's de-risk. The polite way of saying it is you de-risk but the reality is you decouple. We are stumbling into a new world order or new world disorder that is reacting to negative things, not positive things. So suppose that we were having this conversation in the rest of the world. And suppose someone was to raise the issue is, why is the West forgetting about us? Why are they losing us? Why is the West losing the rest? They'll say, don't, don't they know the self-interest of the West? That if we continue to go down this road, more migrants will come, as Gordon correctly said. We will not add to the productive capacity of the global economy. We will not add to the demand of the global economy. We will not unleash potential that the vast majority of people thing can be unleashed if you overcome certain obstacles and, and give help. But what are they looking at? They're looking at the US that produced a global financial crisis. They're looking at vaccine distribution that was uneven and unfair. They're looking at imported inflation. They're looking at interest rates, which makes it very hard for them to borrow. And they're wondering, why are we not part of the conversation. So what do you do when you feel marginalized, when you feel alienated? You do what certain segments of the populations in the West have done. You go for something else. And we've seen coups. We've seen China expand its influence throughout the developing world. And ultimately, we've seen them build pipes, little pipes, around the core of the system which is built on the West. Now, if that system of fragmentation continues, everybody is worse off. And you will not be able to have common solutions to common problems. Um, and that's why we stress partnerships, win-win-win partnerships, win for each side and win for the system. And those partnerships are not just across borders, but within borders. And there are examples in the book of partnerships that can work, what 
Gordon is proposing is not just about the oil countries putting in, but it is the West joining in with guarantees. And you end up with a capital structure that is much more efficient, that allows you to do a lot more. The vaccine was an incredible partnership between government and private sector. The government understood what it can do and what it cannot do. What it can do, it can protect the private sector from catastrophic failure, but doesn't guarantee massive upside, just protects it from catastrophic failure, and let the private sector innovate. So when we look, or rather we look at across borders or within countries, we cannot leave people behind because it will come back and undermine the system. And that's why there is this urgency for better partnerships, better understanding, better visions that we can only solve these things together. Gordon, I know that you know, your interest is, is more global, but if, if you bring it back to the UK for just a moment, you know, if you talk about um, you know, the sort of unilateral decision that America is making to decouple or de-risk uh, from China, does that mean that the UK has to, in some way, sort of hitch its wagon to either the EU or the US if, if, if these economies start fracturing into these separate blocks? You, you mustn't allow yourself to be squeezed between America and China. If Europe allows itself, and I mean the United Kingdom and all the European countries, to be squeezed, they'll be completely marginalized. Look, I've had the opportunity to go to China to meet President Xi on a number of occasions. And I know the problems that China creates for the Western world. Because obviously there is industrial policy subsidies, there is technology transfer taking place, sometimes illegally. Uh, and they are very uh, keen uh, to prevent in investment in industries that they do not want uh, to be uh, influenced by the West. I mean, the Indian finance minister was with me one time in China, and he told me this story about going to this international shop in China. And he'd arrived in China, and it was very cold, and he hadn't brought a coat. So he went into the, in this international shop to buy a coat, and he got this cashmere coat, and it was on there in the Chinese shop. And, $200 or something, it's very cheap, so he says, can I buy that? And then he said to the shop assistant, uh, but, but, but where's the label, where's the tag, who's the, who's the maker? And the shop assistant said, well, what label do you want? We can, get, <laughs> we can give you Burberry, Dior, Canale, anything you want. And of course, it was his point about industrial espionage that they were just stealing technology and stealing uh, sort of brands from the rest of the world. But I think China is, it has changed in the way that it is now competing in the advanced economy. When I met Xi, he told me two things, he said. One is we, China, have got to avoid the middle income trap. And that's the danger that a middle income uh, country never becomes a high income country. And it's happened to many countries in Latin America. It's happening to countries in Asia. And they get absolutely stuck. So the Chinese bargain with its people is that they will give them the prosperity that the West has. And the second thing he said, we've got to avoid the Thucydides trap. And that's the trap that Greece and Sparta, uh, Sparta and Athens got into a long time ago when the rising power challenged the entrenched power. So China, we've got to avoid, he said, China challenging America. Now, you can take that as rhetoric. You can take that as just propaganda. But what I see when I go to China is that they are incredibly worried that they cannot deliver economic prosperity. Uh, that they've got to do that, otherwise the whole regime will actually lose credi credibility. And while they're going to stand up for themselves and challenge the West, we've got to understand that they've got 
domestic problems of their own that they have got to solve, and they would be prepared in certain circumstances on climate change, on the economy, on coordination of economic policy, uh, to come together and, and work with us. And, and, and the danger is, as Mohammed said, we're drifting into one world, two systems. So you will have one system for data, one system for the internet, and another system for the internet that is Chinese run. Some people call it the splinternet. You have two internets, you have two data systems, you have two forms of uh, international organization. You have an IMF and an Asian monetary fund, you have a World Bank and an Asian bank, you have a dollar and you have a Chinese currency. And that is the danger we're facing now. And I would be uh, anxious to try and avoid that by finding the common ground that we can. I always say to the Chinese, I want to talk about human rights because I do not support what they're doing on human rights. But I also say where we can cooperate, we should do it in the interests of climate, in the interests of financial stability, in the interests of growth, in the interest of dealing with poverty and inequality. So do you think, are you so prepared that's, to com- that's the balance. Are you prepared to compromise on the human rights issues no, in no, order I'm not, to... But, but, but no, if when they I don't went, want to talk about human rights, but no, when they I do went want to, to China, do, do when, business. When I went to China, I usually had a list of people that I was concerned about. We set up what was called the Human Rights Dialogue, and China actually agreed to be part of a dialogue. I'm not saying we made the progress that we wanted, but we didn't sort of say to China, do anything you want, we don't care. We always said human rights are absolutely crucial to the future of the world, and we are going to continue to pursue you on these, on these issues, whether it's Hong Kong, Taiwan, whether it's the Uyghur, whether it's uh, any minority, Tibet in China. We've always raised these issues and should be willing to, and always prepared to do so. But it, there comes a point when you've also got to say, do we let the whole world descend into two systems, two completely different systems, like an iron curtain coming down again on trade, on technology, on data, on the internet. And I say we've got to do something to avoid that, not only in the interests of uh, uh, the West, but in the interests of solving the problems that we have got across the world that I keep saying cannot be solved now without global coordination. You cannot solve climate change, financial stability, or pandemics without having some measure of cooperation. Uh, Michael, uh, the pesky world of human, world of human beings, must, it must seem a relief to delve into the world of AI, which doesn't, for you in this book, stand for artificial intelligence, but augmented uh, intelligence, and it too could be the key uh, to a healthier, better uh, future. Um, would you like to delve into that a little bit? for us, because what we, do, what we tend to read are headlines, um, you know, on a daily basis that warn us of the dangers of AI, and we're all pretty petrified of them. In fact, today I heard one of my co-presenters on Times Radio, they had a, an AI version of him presenting the show, and quite honestly, I mean, I didn't like to say it to him at the time, but it was better. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sorry, is, Matt Chorley. Yeah. <laughs> Let me back up a little bit. I mean. So I think in spite of all the challenges and you know, pessimism that may go with them, there is some good news. And that is, and, and this is backing up, it's not just artificial intelligence. There's a whole set of, there's three great transformations going on, at least in the world, um, driven by science and technology. One is the digital revolution. It's an ongoing multi-decade thing and the latest chapter is surely generative AI. But there's also a revolution in biomedical and life sciences that's less talked about, but no less real. 
And then there's a huge technological component of the energy transition um, that we need to deal with sustainability issues. And all of these things now, some of them aren't new, but what's new is the arrival of these powerful tools that are generally accessible and increasingly not very costly. So solar used to be an incredibly costly way to generate electricity. The costs are a tenth of what they were 10 years ago. The cost of DNA sequencing, which is a fundamental tool in biomedical and life sciences, has dropped faster than Moore's law dropped semiconductor prices controlled for power. We have gene editing. I know it scares people, but, <laughs> but all powerful technologies scare people. And then we have this stunning sequence of breakthroughs in artificial intelligence. So 15 years ago, the conventional wisdom in artificial intelligence was if we don't, we as humans know how to do something, but we can't describe precisely how we do it, then we can't make a machine do it because we can't tell it how to do it. And now all of a sudden, we have a whole set of things that machines can do using neural networks and machine learning where we can't describe how we do it. Well, everybody in this room can recognize a chair. Just try, when you go home tonight, to write down a set of instructions that, at the end of which you can be sure that you're looking at <laughs> one of the infinite number of versions of chairs. You'll fail, right? But the machines now don't have any trouble doing it. And now, as we started to write this book, the uh, generative AI, the foundation large language models and their ilk, came on the scene. I thought we had a pretty good chance of generating, reversing the negative productivity trends and generating the kind of productivity surge that would support a really different growth trajectory, which I think we've, we've agreed among ourselves is a, a kind of necessary condition for solving a lot of the, these, these really hard problems, global and domestic. When generative AI came along, I just thought, you know, that does it. <laughs> That takes us right over the finish line. Why? Well, think about it. That generative AI basically, I won't try to describe it technically, but it has at least three really important characteristics. One, it'll deal with virtually any subject you want, and it follows you. So you can ask it about the Italian Renaissance and switch to mathematics and computer coding. This goes right with you. There is no previous version of AI, not image recognition, not speech recognition, not translation, not Siri in your iPhone, not anything that can actually pull that off. Second, you don't need technical training, right? Anybody, you know, who speaks some language uh, can do this. And so it's what economists call a general purpose technology. It'll be the underpinning of virtually everything across the entire economy. There is, I can't think of a sector that can't use this to great effect. And there's just at the early stages of studies that are, you know, are convincing on this point. For example, customer service agents are giving an artificial intelligence agent that immediately increases their productivity by 14%. There's a study done in California relatively recently. Anyway, I won't go on. So, is it an existential threat? Some people, credible people, think it is. I don't. Uh, I think, is it going to mainly... Why put, don't you? Because 
It's not powerful enough yet. But it, but it will become Yeah, but I don't enough. like discussions of the way the world will be 50 years from now, skipping the intervening five decades, right? <laughs> it's entertaining for people, but it doesn't really have much to do with reality. Right now, these machines are fallible. They make mistakes. They make stuff up. You know, if I were adopting it in a company context or even the public sector, I wouldn't let it loose without a human being, right? Because it'll make embarrassing mistakes. Hallucinations are interesting. This is what the tech people call uh, making stuff up. <laughs> and they do. I mean, a senior person who's a friend of ours at Google, Google's AI is barred. They, it was asked to write an essay on inflation. Did a pretty good job, stunningly good job, actually. And at the end of the article, it listed five books and articles that you might want to read to further your knowledge of it. None of them existed. <laughs> <laughs> the AI simply noted that at the end of serious articles on some subject, there was usually further reading. So it made up five things to, <laughs> for further reading. This is a disaster if you're a lawyer. And, <laughs> And what it made up is uh, legal precedents and, co and, and common law cases. Uh, if you're in the creative industries, it's probably a plus. It'll give you ideas because they really do generate interesting stuff. So where are we? We're at the very early stages. There'll be a ton of exploration and, and uh, experimentation. Um, we will not see the impact of this in the next kind of two years, it's too, fat, too soon. But by the end of this decade, if we're right, um, we'll see this, the beginnings of a prolonged surge in, in uh, productivity. What about policy? These things can be used in very dangerous ways. Uh, they can be used with a single-minded uh, focus on replacing people, the so-called automation effect. A friend of ours named Eric Bernolson has called this the Turing trap because Alan Turing said the way you test an AI is by seeing if it can outperform a human. That, that automatically pushes you in the direction of having a bias in the direction of automation and we need to resist it. The current policy agenda is dominated by the downside risk. This is my last point. And, and I and others think it's unbalanced. That is. We need both the downside risk assessment protection and so on, because they're real. But we also need policies that are designed to make this the good uses of this spread. Let me tell you, the past rounds of digital penetration in the economy looked like this. The tech sector and the finance sector were early adopters. Big employment sectors were sitting on the sidelines, you know, doing nothing. The small and medium-sized businesses were lagging. We need policies that are designed to make sure that this co you know, runs across the entire economy. And if we do that, then I think we have a huge opportunity. I don't want to um, dismiss at all anything Mike said. He's clearly a genius. But one of the things that you're very concerned about in this book, I mean, you're currently the UN Special Envoy for Education, Gordon, is actual decreasing rates of education 
in the world. And obviously, with an increasing rate of intelligence in AI, it is concerning to us as human beings. But let's talk about the, de the decreasing rate of education uh, that, that you outline in the book. And actually... Yeah, yeah. The, the problem is that as a result of COVID, large numbers of young people did not go to school. And so the numbers of learning poor, that is, those people who are at the age of 10 or 11 are functionally illiterate. They can't read a text or explain a text, has risen from just over 50% to 70% of children in the developing world. Now, that's an astonishingly sad figure after so many years of education uh, in Africa and other countries. So that's 70% of learning poor. They will leave school early. They will not get jobs based on any qualifications because they'll have none. A lot of girls will be forced into early marriage. There'll be a lot of child labor as kids leave school a lot earlier than the school age uh, uh, should allow them to do. And then you'll have child trafficking and you'll have child slavery as a result of children not being at school. So the picture is, is very grim at the moment because we've ceased to invest enough in education and even the aid money that's coming from countries like us is so small now that the average expenditure on a child's education in a low-income country is only $53 a year. That's a dollar a week. That's all that's being spent when you take into account those children not at school, as well as those children at school not getting a decent education. But there, there is hope, and AI actually is really helpful here. Now, I, I, was, I was talking to someone who was uh, advising one of my son's friends and saying, don't be a lawyer. It's, and I don't know if there's many lawyers in the audience here, and I'm not <laughs> advising people who are thinking of law not to do it, but he's saying artificial intelligence will transform law, and anything you study in the next three years will be irrelevant. And that's what they're saying. Uh, but what is going to happen is you're going to have an unbundling of the professions, law, medicine, accountancy in particular, and a lot of that work can be done by computers and by being digitalization. But as Mike says, in my view, it will not unbundle the central function of a, a lawyer to give proper and wise advice or a doctor to give proper and wise uh, medical uh, uh, advice. And when it comes to teaching, what's really interesting is all the modern uh, sort of uh, work that is being done sees the teacher more as a tutor than as a lecturer. Uh, and if you can use artificial intelligence to measure the progress of every child individually, then the teacher's role as a tutor becomes enhanced. And what you're doing is taking kids through the different phases of the development, perhaps at different stages from other people in the same classroom. But that is more uh, effective in, in bringing out the skills and the talents and the potential of, of children. So I see education being transformed over the next uh, uh, 10, 15 years, and, and particularly important to the poorer countries. Because if you can, if you like, have really qualified tutors that use artificial intelligence to measure the progress of a child, then you know exactly what needs to be done to take them to the next stage. And if we can do that, then there's a chance that all the investment in education that we can make in the future will have far more effect than the investment now. I'm just going to ask you not to make the mistake I made 20 years ago. Um, one of the leaders in AI went to our college, and we were both asked back 20 years ago to present to a group of people. And he put up this paddle game 
where the ball goes back across and you move the paddles to keep it in play. And it was a, a game I used to play in the bar 30 years earlier. And he said, look what happens when you simply instruct the machine what is winning and what is losing. And the first two or three times the machine lost, playing against a human. And then the machine figured out, machine learning, it figured out how to win, and it consistently won. And I remember he sat down after that, I remember thinking, wow, such a smart person, basically working on a game I used to play in the bar. A few years later, that, that technology beat the world champion at one of the most complicated games, Go, and came up with what's known as the 36 move, which had never been seen before. So not only did the machine teach itself how to win, it taught itself to think well beyond what has been done in the past. Then that went into gene editing. And now it's having a medical application. The, the education potential, as Gordon says, is absolutely huge. It's as if every student will have a tutor in their pocket. A tutor who understands the students, who adapts the material, and helps the student along. So these things in the beginning sound a little bit silly, but the potential is incredible. And people, please don't make the naive mistake I made. <laughs> well, thank you all for humoring my home economics questions. Uh, I'm going to open it out now to the audience, who I'm sure can do a lot better. Question for Gordon. Um, just want to preface it very quickly by saying that um, as a working class disabled woman, I, I moved here during the Thatcher era and he was the best prime minister of my lifetime. And my hashtag is, please come back, Gordon Brown, all is forgiven. Um, and I just want to ask if he has any regrets about the uh, decision about deregulating the banks and the financial sector during his tenure as PM. Thank you for your very uh, kind uh, words. I think once you're out, you're out. You know, even in America, if you've stopped being president, you still call yourself president. The minute you're finished as prime minister, you're out the door, you lose the title, nobody talks to you for a long time. So I, I accept uh, that uh, once you're out, you're out. Uh, I don't think we deregulated the banks. I think we didn't regulate them enough. Uh, and the truth is that we set up a system of regulation which uh, we had the Financial Services Authority, the Bank of England and the Treasury working together, and it should have worked and didn't. And what I found out afterwards was whether it was a regulatory failure or just misleading people, the banks did not tell us what was happening and they didn't give us proper information. You know, the night before the Royal Bank of Scotland uh, collapsed, the head of the, bank, the Royal Bank of Scotland phoned me up and, and, and said, all we need is overnight finance. And the whole, the biggest bank crash in history was going to happen the next day and did happen the next day. And he thought, he thought that he didn't have a problem. Uh, when we phoned up and said, how much money do you, do, is going to have to be spent to recapitalize? He said, maybe 5 billion. I said, 50 billion is actually what you need. They did not know what was happening within their own banks. And so our system of regulation <coughs> failed to find out what was happening within these banks. And there was bad things happening in all sorts of different places, and I can go through that. Uh, but we did not know enough, and that's why the system of regulation has got to be far, far stronger in future. Thanks so much. Um, the, you, you great minds, please answer two very quick questions which were, were totally related. 
Why has it become necessary and how do we depoliticize our environment? I, I, I was uh, saying today that when uh, last week it was announced that the targets were changing on electric cars and on heat uh, uh, pumps, uh, that this was abandoning a consensus that had been reached between all the political parties. And I think if you're going to think long-term, and climate change is long-term, then you've got to get everybody on board as far as possible. And as you say, you've got to depoliticize the question. I mean, you don't know who's going to be in power next year or five years from now or 10 years from now, but you do know we're making decisions about the 2030s, the 2040s, and the 2050s. So any politician who's in power at the moment should be thinking, how can I bring people together so that we don't postpone long-term decisions and don't do things just uh, for the short but term. But if you're a politician in power at the moment, you want to... St I mean, what, what I think many of us as voters feel is that that's the, 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 the guiding principle is to stay in power. And those short-term decisions continue to be made in order to facilitate retaining your position. Well, I've got to say, I, I said in 2009, I'll be honest about it, I said, look, there are things we could do to win an election, and we probably should have done them, but I said, you've got to always do the right thing. Uh, it was necessary for us to take all the measures we did over the financial crisis. Uh, standards of living fell in some cases. Uh, people had uh, uh, to, problems with their mortgages. But we had to do the right things to get out of this financial crisis. And, and that was the right thing to do. I, I don't think that you should allow your politicians to simply make short-term decisions for electoral expediency or simply for partisan reasons. It's not just climate change. Just look at HS2, just look at all the decisions we've got to make about infrastructure, look at what happened over Heathrow Airport. All these are big long-term decisions and they cannot simply be at the whim of a few politicians trying to get votes. We've got to insist on a long-term view being taken. We made the Bank of England independent. It wasn't really popular with a lot of people, but we made the Bank of England independent because politicians were deciding interest rates and making the decisions for electoral reasons. So, you know, Nigel Lawson, I remember, would have a budget and then announce a cut in interest rates and, because he had had a wonderful budget. Uh, and we had to take that out of politics and make that about long-term thinking requires that you had an independent Bank of England free of party political politics. So, of course, you're going to have these political arguments. Of course, you're going to have these debates about uh, uh, who should win this election or not. But if we don't, as a country take long-term decisions, look, look at the amount of high-speed travel uh, and trains there are uh, on the continent, uh, look at some of the decisions that are being on, made on infrastructure around the world, and we're simply not making these decisions. They're at the whim of a few politicians. We've got to insist that a long-term view is taken. Otherwise, we are betraying the future of a generation of children who are growing up in this country. Over uh, here. This one's for Gordon. What okay. advice would you give to a young person looking to get into politics? I, I tell all my, I tell all, uh, my uh, colleagues, uh, uh, the best advice I can give them is not to take my advice. <laughs> but, uh, I think you've got to believe in what you want to do. I mean, I've always believed that public service is a, a noble vocation. It's not a career. It's not a job. You're doing something and should be doing something for the betterment and the welfare of, of the country. 
And if you don't believe in that, if you think that politics is just about getting a position, getting an office, getting into this particular job, getting promotion, then you shouldn't really be in politics in my view. It should always be about public service. And you know, when I left office, I made a decision. I would not do private work because I don't think uh, public service should be a platform for private gain. Uh, and I've always held to that because I don't think it's the right thing to do. Uh, and, and so my, my advice is serving your fellow country uh, men and women is, is one of the greatest, greatest things that anybody can do. But you've got to believe that that's what you're doing to do it. And if you've made up your mind, and there are thousands of young people who want to serve our country, and I'm really excited by young people concerned about the environment and other issues who want to see that change, but you've got to want to see change in the interests of serving the public. That's the noblest calling of all. Thank you, Gordon. And we have a young Hi. lady. Um, it's here. been amazing to hear you speak, really inspirational. Um, I was just wondering, um, I, maybe this is overly ambitious, but I would love to be Prime Minister one day. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was just wondering, this is mainly aimed at Gordon Brown, but um, do you think, and what do you think is needed uh, for the UK to gain its status that it had quite a while ago? And do you think the UK is capable of getting back to the international kind of standpoint it used to have and the hold it used to have on all the different countries in the world, because I think we've lost that recently. Can, can, can I allow this question to be answered by Mohammed and Mike? Because they've got a view of the United Kingdom uh, from looking at it firsthand, and then I might say something as well. Mohammed. Yes, absolutely. If you look at the attributes of the UK, they are what other countries would love to have, the universities. Um, some of the most amazing companies, the people we produce, and yet we don't fulfill the potential. And that speaks to a lot of things we talked about, which is the pipeline gets frustrated at a certain point um, because you're not unleashing potential. I can give you example after example of that. But if you are born a country today and you could have any natural attributes that exists, you would pick quite a few that the UK have. You've spoken about uh, taxing petro-states some very modest sums, 25 billion. I've read in the FT today about hotel rooms in London, 18,000 pounds a night. Do you say anything in your book about taxing the uber-wealthy? Thank you. Absolutely we do. There's a, we talk about fiscal policy, we talk about both the revenue side and the expenditure side. On the revenue side, we cite examples of special interests having um, particular benefits that should not exist. We talk about how windfall taxation of the energy company should have come much earlier and in much greater size. We also look at the expenditure side and talk about are, is the spending enhancing productivity and enhancing well-being. And then there's a third element we talk about is redistribution in terms of safety nets, the importance of protecting the most vulnerable segments of the population. So yes, we do talk about not just taxation, but fairer spending and also fairer safety nets. Thank you very much, Mohammed. Um, Maybe I should just answer that question about uh, uh, Britain. The Britain what, status, yes. I, I, feel, I feel I owe you an answer. That, that, that's the next Prime Minister, but one speaking. Indeed, you'll be, you'll be sorry if you didn't get in with her today. Uh, 
we do have an enormous amount of power around the, around the world because of our language, because of our universities, because of our support for the rule of uh, law, uh, because of our international aid budget over a, a period of years, which has built support uh, around the world. And of course, there's a lot of distrust. There's always been a lot of distrust of, about Britain because of the em em empire. I remember this Indian saying to me, uh, you know, why does the sun never set on the British Empire? And he says, because nobody can trust the British in the dark. <laughs> but uh, but I, I, do, I, I do think, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm a European. Uh, I want us to be part of Europe. Uh, I want us to realize that that is part of our future, whatever the political or constitutional relationship is. But, but I do believe we can still have a huge influence uh, uh, around the world. But it does depend on our values. It's not just about our interests. It depends on what we stand for. And I think uh, the lesson of the last, what, 100 years is that we've got to stand for a world that is fairer, that is more inclusive, that is an environment that is more sustainable, and we respect the dignity of every individual. If we stand up for that around the world, I think we will continue to make friends and have influence. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, and thank you all very much. On behalf of the... Uh, on behalf of the How To Academy, I'd like to thank Gordon Brown, Mohammed A. L. Arian, and Michael Spence for spending their time with us this evening in that very engaging conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. This episode of the podcast starred Gordon Brown, Michael Spence, and Mohammed Al Arian, and was presented by Mariella Frostrup. It was produced by Esme Bright, and the show is made by Esme, myself, and Nicole Wong. Our editor is John Doughty. We hosted our guests this week in person in London, and tickets to join live were half price for members of our How To Plus program. Find out more about How To Plus on our website. The code POD50, that's P-O-D-5-0, -O, gets you a permanent 50% discount on your membership. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on that's nice at caskers.com we make this experience easy caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code welcome 10 for ten dollars off your first purchase get ten dollars off your first purchase with code welcome 10 at caskers.com